Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. It's the morning after, the morning after the night before, and as we record, the US presidential election still hasn't been settled. Donald Trump claimed he'd won. Joe Biden insisted he was on track for victory. Donald Trump says the election has been stolen and has threatened legal action. Joe Biden has focused on a message of bringing the country together. So this unpredictable, unprecedented, at times unedifying election may still have some way to run, but we're going to catch up with what we know so far and what it means for the US, the UK and the world. There's an election campaign played out during a pandemic. Back in the UK, the coronavirus crisis has taken on a political edge. Yesterday, MPs voted to take England into a second national lockdown. But the unity of the spring has long gone, and Boris Johnson now faces opposition on many fronts. We're going to take a look at the Prime Minister's problems and what he could do to take the pressure off. And to make sense of it all, I'm joined in our virtual studio by a terrific, if terrifically sleep-deprived, panel. With me today are uh, senior IFG fellows uh, Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hi. And Kath Haddon. Hi, Bronwyn. And Georgina Wright, Senior Researcher on International Affairs. Hi, Georgie. Hi. How are your sleep levels all doing? Jill, how was your virtual election party? Uh, it was quite fun. I had a bunch of friends from uh, from across the states, but uh, as they said, they all these were people I knew from Berkeley, so slightly inevitably, they were all people who had gravitated to blue bubbles, so they weren't exactly being able to give us a... a in touch with uh, with the diversity of opinion in the US, but I think they started off um, quite relaxed. And as we saw the results coming in, got much more unnerved when Trump appeared to be outperforming the polls. Uh, but I have been in touch with them since, and they do seem to have reverted a bit. So it was sort of very good fun, but very difficult, I thought, to find what to follow. So it's quite difficult to follow the TV. I think Kath did a bit better watching CNN. Well, we're going to dig into all that. We're delighted as well to be joined today by Yasmin Serhan, who's staff writer at The Atlantic and a San Francisco native, now resident in London. Hi, Yasmin. Hi there, everyone. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. What was it like to watch a US election in the UK? Oh, gosh, it was sleepless for one day and Mm. night. Um, Yeah, it was interesting. It was my first election watching Not From Home. Um, And I think what was interesting, I think the first thing that stood out to me was I went onto Twitter and it was obviously just UK Twitter. Um, so I had things like, you know, people talking about the betting markets and stuff, which I was like, not used to. Um, but yeah, no, it was a bit, it was a bit surreal. Um, I was obviously kind of like everyone a bit kind of surprised and anxious not to know the results by the time I eventually gave up and went to bed. And lo and behold, here we are more than 24 hours later, still waiting. So, and and still with more to go, maybe I'm curious what part of the elections you find that you, you have to explain to your British friends that really seems very foreign. Oh, gosh. I mean, I think, you know, as ever, the Electoral College, I think, is a bit mystifying to people. Um, The, you know, the fact that we've had elections, you know, as recently as the last one, where you'll have one candidate with millions of votes ahead in the popular vote, where it's still, you know, kind of no one really knows who's ultimately going to be the victor. But yeah, you know, I, I think this something that I've observed in the time that I've been here, I guess the last three years now, is that, you know, I, I feel, I get the sense that my British friends are just as like kind of clued in to what's going on as my American ones. It feels like, you know, American politics just takes the air out of the room. <laughs> like every, it's just too big to ignore. Um, I always kind of laugh when I hear people talk about wanting to flee to Canada if they don't like the results. I'm like, you could go to the ends of the earth. You're never going to see yeah, no, I found it. I used to be a Times bureau chief um, um, uh, based in Washington and, and found, I mean, explaining the, 
uh, Congress or, or reminding people of Congress as opposed to the presidential election. That 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 that, that always um, took time. That bit is is different, and the fact that the states have very different rules for counting. Um, their votes. That's become more and more relevant. Well, we're going to talk on, uh, about all of this. In fact, we're going to plunge right in because there's really only one huge story this week, and that's it, and possibly next week too. We're recording this podcast, I should say, at midday on Thursday, and neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump has yet reached that crucial number of 270 electoral college votes. And the outcome at this point is resting on votes in, in Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and North Carolina. But Biden has looked to have the edge since the early morning of Wednesday. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, as we know, has begun uh, launching lawsuits to try and challenge the count in close states. So, Yasmin, however this, this ends, this isn't quite the election that the polls predicted, is it? That um, we, we, There was a lot of talk beforehand about a blue wave for the Democrats, uh, a Trump backlash, and so on. What should we make of the fact that the polling really seems to be out? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it. I, I kind of felt leading up to this, you know, and I, th- I think a lot of Americans, especially those who experience or who remember at least 2016, you know, kind of felt that there was a little bit of trepidation. You didn't want to, you know, be- you know, believe too wholeheartedly in one outcome. But in those last 48 hours, I, I could feel even people who, you know, didn't want to say where they thought it was going to go, kind of expressing, you know, slight optimism one way or another. Um, and once again, we've kind of found ourselves in a situation where the polling wasn't quite right, as you said. Um, but also, I think, you know, if, if folks, particularly on the Democratic side, were, you know, waiting for that blue wave, as you say, this repudiation of the last four years, that just didn't happen. Um, I think what this election did confirm, um, something that we already knew, but for those who didn't um, or had hoped perhaps that we could prove otherwise, is that this is a deeply divided country, one where in which, you know, I was to say historic record numbers is probably the in terms of voting that's probably the only really you know fantastic news that I think everyone could agree is quite good to come out of this but yeah a deeply divided country that um, are firmly entrenched along partisan lines and so so perhaps just take us through what the appeal of Trumpism is or appeal of, of Donald Trump because that's one thing that is coming indisputably out of this election even if Joe Biden makes it to the White House um, the, the what to the much of the world looks very strange uh, behavior, breaking all kinds of uh, norms, like, you know, not employing your family and, and not releasing your tax returns and then, and then you know, con- conducting foreign affairs in a very impetuous way uh, and tweeting in big capitals and um, denying the coronavirus, all kinds of um, strange behavior. Actually, in a sense, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's, it's a perhaps a bit mystifying to, to folks on the outside and even folks inside, um, you know, half the population that didn't uh, support the president. But notably, you know, Trump increased his vote share from 2016. Um, 68 million people cast their votes for the president. Um, for reference, that's a larger number than the population of the UK. So this isn't a small group of Americans, uh, needless to say. And in, in terms of what attracts them to, to the president, I mean, in 2016, I think a lot of us sort of told ourselves, look, you know, they didn't trust Hillary Clinton. Um, they, you know, they kind of went after a political novice just to see what would happen. But that isn't the case this time. This time we've had four years of seeing the president in action, seeing what, you know, that sort of divisive iconoclast politics looks like. And, you know, it clearly, based on the results that we have so far, can say that it remains an attractive, durable force. And and I think, you know, irrespective of who wins this election, um, 
Trump and Trumpism um, and those, you know, capital letter tweets, as you say, I mean, that's not going to go away. Um, I, I can very much imagine a, a world in which there's a Biden presidency and it's narrated by Trump's tweets. Because effectively, you know, if he does leave the White House, that's exactly, you know, he'll be an unemployed guy with a with a phone. So. With a lot of time for, for, for Twitter, yeah. yeah. Um, and we'll come on to questions of, um, you know, of the Senate and so on. Kath, you, you look at elections and, and constitutions, plural, uh, very, very closely. Has this election and comment, uh, Trump's comments about the results and vote counting, has that undermined trust in the US system, do you think? Uh, I mean, long term, we're going to have to wait and see. But certainly at the short term, I mean, today, watching CNN, you know, the sort of even the, the presenters there are mystified showing these two clips of Trump supporters in different states, one in Arizona, I think the other in Pennsylvania, one where they're saying they're chanting stop the vote and the other where they're chanting keep keep counting the votes uh, because obviously Trump is, you know, ahead in one and, and more votes will undermine that and behind in another. But this all goes to the comments that he made at 2.30 in the morning, um, a day after election, where, you know, talking about what the whether the election was fair, talking about wanting to go to the Supreme Court and so forth. And it's all to do with the mail-in votes and at what point they can be postmarked and still carry and whether that's fair. But but obviously the US system is very much dependent upon states and the different rules that they have on how their voting system works. So it's kind of throwing all of that stuff into question. A lot of it's very much COVID related. I mean, the other big question is obviously, you know, as Yasmin's already said, the the sort of discrepancy that can arrive between the scale of the popular vote, where the Democrats look uh, likely to get a very big lead on that front, and then the Electoral College vote, where this time round, um, it looks like they might manage to win that. Does it, so, Kath, does, does, it, does it matter if the popular vote goes one way, but the Electoral College goes another? I mean, every country has, unless, unless it's it just... just Giving you know the 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 the, uh, the victory to um, on the on the basis of the popular vote. Every, every country yeah. has a, a system like no, this. No, we, we have that in a post. sense. Yeah. yeah, we have first past the post, and people have plenty of complaints for that. Does 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 it matter, or does it begin to set up attention? I think. You know, the the issue is that I think it's something like the last seven or eight elections that the Democrats have come out ahead on that. So it starts to sort of pose these questions about what actually you're voting for. And also it depends about how your, you know, the electoral system, college system works and how much that is related to sort of population and so forth. I doubt, you know, Americans always talk about this sort of stuff around an election. I doubt that it will mean lead to any kind of meaningful change. The deeper stuff is obviously about how Trump has been talking about the election and just this concept that what a free and fair election is and it is sometimes means losing when your opponents win more votes and that you've got to wait for all votes to be counted and all of those sort of concepts and uh, you know, it seems strange that we're talking concept about the, the loser, the loser accepting the result. Exactly, which is at, at the heart of democracy. Exactly, and it seems strange that we're talking about all of this stuff, but we are. Jill, you sent a, a fascinating tweet yesterday. Where you said our government never seems to think ahead and plan for things not turning out the way that they want. Trump is looking rather more strategic. What, what did you mean? Well, I've been quite uh, taken by on coronavirus. The government seems to be constantly surprised by things uh, being about to hit it. And I think we're going to come and discuss that a bit later. But I mean, Kat was mentioning some of the things where I think Trump has been definitely laying the groundwork because the complaints about the electoral system, the risks of fraud, 
etc., weren't heard for the first time when he looked at the polls or looked at the results coming in on uh, on Tuesday night. He was you know, going on for quite some time in advance that there were big risks, the mail-in ballots were potentially very vulnerable. So he's been laying the groundwork for his claims that this would be a dodgy election, that he would probably appear to be ahead and then the Democrats would steal the election. So I think you could say that he's you know, had one eye on this scenario for some time and been building that up. And of course, the other thing that he did, offered the opportunity, I don't put this into his strategy, uh, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying in September. He did then move to accelerate the nomination and uh, swearing in of Amy Coney Barrett to ensure that he had a Supreme Court, which was tilted in his favour as much as possible, looking with a sort of eye on the prize that if it was a contested election, he's made it very clear from deploying his law law teams all over the place, that he would contest an election that didn't come out uh, with the right answer as far as he saw it, that he would have a Supreme Court that was likely to be as open as possible to any arguments they might find to make. Various people have been saying, well, actually, his problem is he hasn't got a case. But if he does find a case, then he has been thinking that way ahead. So so he's clearly been planning uh, planning his plan B here if the people didn't. Yeah, and we've heard advisors of his saying, uh, uh, even this, this morning, well, look, better to make a clean exit if he loses so that he can come back in four years. Yasmin, I wanted to ask you, supposing Joe Biden does um, does does squeak in, to the White House, but he has the Senate against him. The Senate's still con- controlled by Republicans, and indeed the Democrats look um, to have lost a bit of their majority in the in the House. How much does that hamper what he can do as president? Um, it, 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 I think it causes big problems for him. I mean, you know, he won't have the advantage of Barack Obama or Donald Trump both entering their first terms with control of both houses. So, I mean, yeah, I think in terms of, you know, any quick action on the pandemic, on the recession, I mean, I I think those sort of things go out the window. Um, It would definitely be a challenge. Um, And that's another area, I think, where the polls kind of failed there. I mean, you know, if, if nothing else, I think Democrats were expecting that, you know, we perhaps even widen our majority in the House and possibly steal the Senate. And yeah, just based on where we're at, that doesn't look like that's happening. Yeah. And it really does constrain what he can do, any president, quite a lot, doesn't it? I mean, it's unusual for a president to get in and not have the Senate uh, belonging to his own party, at least for at least for a while. Uh, and it constrains, among other things, what he can do on um, trade. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's emblematic, again, of the just how divided this country is. And the way we've set up the system and, and the way that it is, it just, you know, it, it kind of entrenches those divides. There, There isn't, I, I don't think, a, a lot of incentive, so perhaps on the Republicans' part, at least to, you know, kind of play by their rules, not that there's a Democrat in office, if indeed Biden does well. Yasmin, can I just ask you whether, whether you know, Joe Biden's been a senator for a long time, I mean, <laughs> president of the Senate as vice president. Does that make any difference? Is he likely to be any good as a sort of reaching across the aisle as a Senate deal maker? Or is are the, is the polarization such now that that sort of coalition building is really out of the question? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I know that from his tenure in the Senate, I mean, he was known as a, as a lawmaker who did reach across the aisle and had friendships on both sides and, and really did try to bridge that gap. But I think that was also a very different America. And I'm not sure if if that's going to be enough to overcome the divisions that we're facing here. I mean, just to kind of 
emphasize the point that I think was made earlier. I mean, this is an instance where we could have large swathes of the American population, no matter which way it goes, walking away having less faith in the democratic process. How do you overcome that faith? I don't even think just, you know, the sort of bipartisan unity is can do that. And, you know, Biden, I think, has been trying to strike that sort of unifying tone. We heard in his address yesterday uh, saying, you know, and he said this throughout the campaign that I'm going to be a president for all Americans. He's really trying to like push back against this sort of exclusive populist tone that we've been used to for the last four years. But um, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic as to whether that will be enough. I, I want to come on to the populism in a, in a minute. You wrote a, a great piece for The Atlantic this week on this. But, uh, Georgie, I just wanted to bring you in on this. Uh, Giva Hofstadt uh, tweeted that the chaos across the Atlantic was a m- reminder why Europeans are stronger together. But is is Joe Biden necessarily good for European unity? I mean, if he, if he does make it to, to president, Trump, you might argue, has actually bound European capitals together, with the exception of the UK. Yeah, it was a bit of an odd thing to say, really. I mean, I think clearly EU capitals would find it a lot easier to work with Joe Biden. Um, you know, a more in, they'll see a more engaged US on the international stage. You know, uh, by President Biden would rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Um, there might be more willingness to revisit the Iran deal. I mean, these are all things that EU capitals are looking for. But it's also not really a return to the past. I mean, the pivot away from Europe um, started under President Obama. I mean, yeah, Trump was clearly critical of the EU, and that did prompt some discussion in Brussels about how can you have EU security that is not reliant on the US. Um, but that discussion hasn't really improved. They haven't really come to any conclusions about how they can do that. And, you know, as just me was saying, um, if Joe Biden does win, he's going to concentrate the first couple of months on trying to bring his nation together, um, especially thinking ahead of the midterm elections where, you know, the Democrats will be keen to try and increase their share of seats in, in, in Congress and in the Senate. So um, I don't really know if this is going to force rethink in the EU. Um, and I also don't think it's going to drastically change the way the EU engages with the United States. I mean, the US does prioritise its bilateral relationships with individual member states. So, you know, Warsaw, Berlin, Paris, they all have very strong relationships with Washington. And they're not going to give that up so that Brussels takes the lead. Um, so, again, a, a bit of an odd thing to say, um, but I think the EU will be watching and hopefully will come up with a way to engage the US that is more strategic. Um, but I'm not holding my breath at this point. Jill, Georgie mentioned um, the climate change agreements and the day after the election saw the US formally leave the Paris Climate Agreement. Do you think that um, the the, the COP meeting summit next year, which the UK is hosting, is that and climate going to be one way that the UK builds bridges with a Biden administration, if there is one? Yes, I think that's clearly an area where the government is much closer to a Biden administration's outlook than a Trump administration's outlook. It's already got some quite good momentum behind COP next year with the announcements of net zero targets by China, by Japan, by South Korea. I think being able to work jointly with the US will be very good. I think there'll be very good connections at official level. And I think that will be really helpful because that's going to be one of the major diplomatic targets for the UK next year, a very early demonstration of whether it can deliver as global Britain and I think, you know, having Biden there will make that much easier. He's already given notice, I think, today, saying today the U.S. just left the Paris Accord under a Biden administration 77 days 
we will be back. I'm not sure whether Yasmin, whether he needs Congress on side for that, whether he can just take the US back in. You might want to let us know, but at least it's going to be much more positive on that. So I think that does give uh, give an area where you can have some really constructive working because you know, there's actually quite a lot of agendas where the UK's interests are more easily delivered by a Biden administration, even if ideologically they seem further apart and more comfortable in some ways with the trust with the Trump outlook. I think you know the belief in multilateralism, multilateralism and rules-based system is much easier with a much more conventional US administration than the one we've seen for the last four years. Biden's pride in his Irish roots um, and the way that the, um, the Senate has discovered all kinds of Irish roots, uh, which many Americans have, is that is that going to give the UK a particular problem um, on, on the Brexit? It obviously means that we need to be careful and be very obviously protective of the Good Friday Agreement. I think, you know, Biden has already given notice, Biden and Nancy Pelosi, that they weren't very impressed with the internal market bill and the threat to break international law and set aside elements of the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Brexit negotiations. But you know, the government, I think, will be saying, well, if we do a deal with the EU, then we won't need to do that. And that will all be in the past. And we can bury that. I mean, the thing about Joe Biden, I think, is that although he, as Trump, will both be very keen to promote U.S. interests. They are, after all, U.S. president. He does have a more internationalist outlook. Uh, I don't think that's something you could ever accuse the Trump administration of. No, but I, w- I wanted to bring uh, Yasmin in on, the, on this point about the, uh, this great piece she wrote in The Atlantic this week, um, saying that populist leaders around the world, Modi, Orban, Bolsonaro, see Trump as an ally, a kind of kindred spirit. Do you think they're going to take encouragement from this result? One hundred percent. I mean, those um, perhaps with the exception of Modi, all of them have expressed which way they want the election to go anyway. So, um, you know, and and I think just more broadly with populism, um, some a big takeaway that I've kind of gotten from this election is that, I mean, well, first and foremost, Trumpism, uh, you know, kind of his own brash form of of populism as a political style isn't going away. But but also that you know, it, even if he does lose, the lesson that you know his supporters and like-minded populists around the world are going to take from this um, isn't that, you know, you win some, you lose some. Um, He's given them a narrative to hold on to, which is that this election was stolen from me. And in a way, there's almost like this populist idea in that, you know, that request or that demand, I should say, that the voting stop, which is that, you know, only my supporters, the real people, should have their voices heard. So, yeah, I I think either way, you know, a lot of those leaders, uh, Bolsonaro, Duterte, Orban, they've all really benefited from having a like-minded ally in the White House. Um, I think even if Trump weren't to get a second term, they would still be able to point to him as an example of what's possible and even perhaps point to his loss if if that's what happens um, as, you know, sort of, you know, if, if they ever run into political trouble down the road to say, look, the elites are taking the election from me just like they took it from Trump. And Kath, finally, just just pulling all this tantalising stuff together. Obviously, there's going to be days and days more of, um, uh, to talk to talk about it. Um, famously, um, the US president does not immediately go into the White House, but the inauguration is mm. in um, is is in January, and, and used to be uh, much much longer. I think for George Washington, it was actually in April, uh, 1789, because uh, it, it took so long uh, to travel and to uh, to get things together. So, if you had to pick between the the British system of uh, in tomorrow. 
uh, or the American one of, uh, of, of 10 weeks or so? What would you pick? I mean, normally I'd say that the, the US system and having all that time to prepare is a great advantage. But the thing is, these are not normal times. And if Biden is, a, you know, is the, the victor of this, he's facing a very different transition. Yes, he's more experienced than, than you know, many sort of first term presidents. He's, he's been in the White House. He knows how it runs. But at the same time, and, you know, this government, the current government in place is dealing with a major pandemic. And for a new president coming in, sitting on the sidelines, watching all of that is going to be very difficult. We know that Biden wants to set up a COVID, his own COVID task force. Uh, we also know that US transitions for all that they have this great amount of time in this sort of big industry of transition preparation. They're also quite rubbish at, at continuity between governments. Obama actually did quite a lot. George W. Bush did quite a lot to try and improve the sort of continuity from one government to another. You can't see Trump being as magnanimous as um, his predecessors in terms of doing that, and particularly on issues like COVID, where you know there are big differences in how the two candidates want to approach the issue. So it could be a really difficult transition period for both the you know the incumbents and Biden if he's if he's the one that comes out of this on top. Well, you very nicely brought us on to our second subject, that major pandemic, which the US has um, released us from talking about uh, in lots of detail, at least for a couple of days. Uh, So let's turn our attention closer to home, Mm. because today is the first day of the second national lockdown, or English lockdown. Rising cases of, of coronavirus and hospital admissions have seen governments across Europe tighten these restrictions. And as the pressure grew to follow suit, Boris Johnson did indeed call a second lockdown. Jill, we've been here before. We've driven the R rate down before. We've knocked cases of coronavirus right down. Is is this a failure of government or given that it's happening right across Europe, something incredibly hard to avoid? Yeah, I think, I mean, clearly, you know, as uh, as you've rightly said, Bronwyn, there are increases in coronavirus across Europe. So to say that this is a singly British failure would be unfair to the government. However, I think the government does stand open to the accusation that it failed to think ahead. One thing that clearly is lacking is sorting the very well-documented problems in test and trace, and in particular the trace bit of test and trace. That clearly isn't working. The government had the summer when it had driven the R-rate down below one to get that really ready and robust for an autumn and Clearly, it's not done that. So I think that's failure one. Failure two, though, I think is a simple failure to look ahead. It is very bizarre that just two weeks ago or so, when Keir Starmer leapt on the sage advice and was calling for a national circuit breaker over half term, the government was pumping out stuff saying, look at this, look at Labour, they're asking for a national lockdown. Without, and a lot of people pointed this out, without thinking, well, might we not be forced into doing that? And that's made them look uh, look really fairly sort of clueless and taken aback by the fact that they were trying something. Maybe it was legitimate to try it in defiance of the scientific advice. The way in which the Chancellor let the furlough scheme expire on the 31st of October, but then had to sort of resurrect it instantly. And now I think it's had to extend it further. So this is a government really that looks as though it 
is finding it very difficult to think more than two, three, four days ahead and therefore keeps on having to make changes at quite a lot of cost to both public confidence and also, you know, just the efficiency of its response. And very interesting, I thought, uh, in the debate yesterday on the lockdown restrictions, how many Conservative MPs were demanding to see more of the data behind the government's decisions, more of the economic impact analysis, what they were basing those decisions on, why they'd moved away from their tiered approach, which was supposed to be a durable alternative. Why has that not turned out to be true? And I think really signalling that the government might have got away with it this time, but it's going to, if it really needs to extend again in December, is going to find it very difficult to do that without depending completely on Labour votes. Very interesting. Georgie, I mean, you've been looking at, at um, the, the rest of Europe and we've seen tight lockdowns in some, some parts of Europe, such as France. President Macron is also facing a backlash. Um, how are people reckoning that he's done? Um, could he have uh, headed off these problems? Macron's big, big problem um, is that uh, the way that kind of his response has been is very centralised, but actually in practice, the implementation has very much been at the regional level. And you're hearing sort of local councils and local mayors just being very angry at the way that they found out the information, the way that they felt they can't, they they aren't and still are not able to communicate um, quickly and efficiently with central government. So the backlash has really been in the handling of it rather than the measures themselves. Um, I think the bigger question is for the EU as a whole. How can members, how long can member states continue to have sort of their individual responses? And when, particularly thinking on the economic front, will EU countries need to come together and think about a much more ambitious package? And I think that's where Macron is going to have to play a much crucial role and might be sort of, um, you know, uh, criticised not only within France, but across the EU. So it will be really interesting to see how the dynamic plays between him and Chancellor Merkel, but also his relationship with the Dutch Prime Minister, who we know has been much more reluctant to have a big EU package. Thanks very much. And Yasmin, do you think the UK is avoiding the intense politicisation of coronavirus that we've seen in the US, you know, becoming a, a political statement of whether you wear a mask, no mask, or wear a mask, but not covering your nose? Yeah, I, I think it, it certainly would probably want to avoid that. I mean, just to Jill's point very quickly about the UK not being the only one facing these rising cases. I think the US reported more than 100,000 new cases in one day just or yesterday, So, um, which I think is more than any country in the world uh, in terms of documenting cases, which is um, quite surreal. But, but yeah, to this point, I, I think there is certainly a desire on the part of some to politicize this. Um, I mean, we've seen Nigel Farage, for example, um, rebranding his Brexit party, I think is the Reform Party. Clearly, I think he's identified sort of a gap um, where he thinks he can kind of take advantage of the sort of, you know, folks who are a bit more averse to sort of the strict lockdowns um, or a bit suspicious. Um, You know, we've also seen, obviously, a lot of the anti-lockdown protests kind of mix in with the QAnon folks, which is another U.S. um, export. I think it would obviously be really damaging and really complicate the government's response if this did kind of fall down onto partisan lines. Um, I, I don't really get the impression, though, just from being here in the U.K., that it's as um, partisan as it seems to be in the US. Mm. And Kath, these latest restrictions are the law, but they still depend on public compliance. Do you think that's going to be harder this time? 
It feels like inevitably it must be. I mean, what's really interesting in terms of the regulations that were voted through last night and are now law is how much longer they are than the sort of the original ones that we had in place that, you know, had so many flaws. There are Obviously, we're all supposed to stay in our homes except for reasonable excuses to leave. But whereas back in the the first lockdown, there was this huge debate about what that means and everyone started to get confused between the guidance and the law and so forth. This time round, the regulations are some 30 odd pages long and include loads and loads of exceptions, you know, everything that the government could have thought of. So they're clearly a lot more focused on the sort of the detail of exactly what the lockdown means. In theory, that makes it easier for the police in terms of you know understanding what the law is it's not so easy in terms of actually enforcing it because a lot of it is obviously to do with people's intentions when they leave the house and so forth um, but the, the stuff on gatherings and the fines that would be in place and so forth are a lot clearer for the police but none of that really affects like the overarching issue which is whether or not people c- you know comply try to avoid other people avoid letting people into their homes all of these sorts of things and we really need this time round the government to do a lot more research to use its scientific advisors to do a lot more research to sort of understand that level of compliance because it isn't all about the law and the sticks that you might put in place in terms of threatening people if they if they do do you know what they're not supposed to it's also about making sure that you know your comms messages are backing that up and are encouraging people about the the good reasons why they need to do this and how they can be helping and so forth so um yeah it does feel like it's going to be more difficult but we really need the government to sort of take a close look at that and to understand if it's not good compliance what is going on and how that can be addressed but I think just to come in on Kath's point there, I think one of the problems is the government is not putting out the evidence which says you can go for a walk, but you can't play golf. You can go to a park, but you can't go to a botanical garden. And those sorts of rather sort of spurious differentiations, I think, undermine some of the credibility here because the government isn't explaining its sort of view of actually where the really risky transmission settings are. And I think that's why you're getting far more querying of the detail of some of this. Back in March, nobody really knew what was going on. People were quite fearful. Now, quite a lot of people think they've had coronavirus. Other people have thought, well, you know, I've got on with my life and can't understand the rationale behind some of these rather nitpicking restrictions. And I think once you start querying some of it, you start querying all of it and just wonder, you know, so I think uh, the government potentially has a much bigger compliance problem this time around, as Kath said. Well, that, that's going to be fascinating. We're going to have uh, um, weeks more to talk about this, four weeks more, uh, to be precise. <laughs> um, uh, and it may well indeed be extended, as you, um, you were hinting at there, all that to discuss, and I'm sure will be going on long after the American election is settled. But we're going to have to bring an end now to Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Jill Rutter, Georgina Wright, and especially Yasmin Sirhan. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks to you all at home for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more of our discussions, and please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. There's a whole load of terrific new shows there for you there, uh, including a discussion on how the government is communicating about the looming Brexit deadline, and a special event to mark the publication of our Performance Tracker 2020, which looks at money into public services and what's come out in the time of coronavirus. You can find all our podcasts wherever else you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review. We count all the votes you cast. 
And of course, you can find all our work on our website, including the new performance tracker report. That's at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. There's lots there, lots to read, lots to listen to over the next four weeks of lockdown. And maybe after an astonishing few days in America, we'll all get some sleep as well. See you soon.